Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, we actually are taking a one-week break from Colossians. We are very close to finishing Colossians. Uh, the preaching team looked at the passage that Mike did last week. That was supposed to be two sermons, that we combined those passages into one. And so we have room for a standalone sermon that you're going to get from me today. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to be in John chapter 5, if you want to start turning there. And we're going to look at a story that has an important question from Jesus that's going to be the jumping off point for what we'll talk about today. This was, being transparent, this was a sermon I actually preached like eight years ago, back when we were ministering in Kansas City, Missouri. And it was after I attended a pastor's retreat, and the speaker there, Kent Carlson, uh, challenged us as pastors to be changed people after our encounters with Christ. And I loved the, the message he gave us. I asked him, hey, can I have your outline for that? And he was so gracious. He said, take all of my notes, use whatever you want on that. So uh, the majority of the credit goes to him, Kent Carlson, for what you're about to hear. I don't, I've changed stuff then and today. I don't know whose words are whose at this point, but I got I to gotta give a shout out to Kent. Uh, but I resonated with his message then, and I still do, as I was preparing to preach today and looking over this sermon. So I hope this is something that challenges you all as, as well as we seek to be a people being transformed into the image of Christ. I suspect many of you in this room have had times where you've had uh, a feeling come over you after a very significant spiritual experience. Often it's maybe while you're at a conference or a retreat for students. I know it's when we're at like summer camps or a time of service to God. Maybe it's an amazing worship experience where it seems like God is almost tangibly present and he's doing some really powerful work in people's lives. And I, I love those moments where it seems like there's clarity, where like the fog lifts and you absolutely know why it is you are taking up space on this planet and everything seems to make sense because you're getting a glimpse of heaven on earth and you know deep inside that the goodness and presence of God is there with you. Some of you, I hope, know what I'm talking about here, that you've had those moments and I'm sure we could swap stories about that. These are moments of knowing beyond your intellect or your emotions that God is real, that he is at work within us, and everything inside of us wants to follow him every day of our lives for the rest of our lives. But then what happens to us? Well, Monday morning happens, right? God overwhelms us on Sunday, and we're ready to live wholeheartedly for him. But then we wake up on Monday to what? Well, we wake up to a world of bills and diapers and mortgages and crabby bosses and sore throats and flat tires and deadlines and rebellious children and marital conflict and on and on and on. And so often that other stuff just swallows us up and we begin to wonder what happened to me. Just a day earlier, I was ready to follow God to the ends of the earth, but it's just a couple hours into Monday and I've already rolled my eyes at my spouse, yelled at my kid, flipped someone off on the freeway who cut me off, <laughs> lied to my boss, and the glory of God, which was so real just 24 hours ago, is a distant, irrelevant memory. What is going on there? How does this happen to us? Well, here's the issue. Powerful spiritual experiences, as wonderful as they are, simply do not transform character, the essence of who we are. They have a crucial role in our spiritual life, and I find myself hoping for more and more of them, but on Monday morning, who we actually are will be the person crawling out of bed ready to face the world. 
And the good news that Jesus brought is that the person crawling out of bed on Monday morning can actually be profoundly and authentically transformed, but will take a purposeful and intentional decision to cooperate with the Holy Spirit over a lifetime of training. The Bible teaches us in Galatians 5 that when we live our lives increasingly controlled by the power of the Spirit of God, one of the results will be uh, we begin to experience the fruit of the Spirit, that the character of God himself will be formed in us not by our own power, but by the power of God, that we will actually become people that are filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We will be transformed in the person that we were created to be. We will not just be stuck with trying to be someone we know we're not, but we'll actually become the person we have always hoped we could become. And then as we become who God created us to be, it opens the door to us having unhindered communion with God himself. But all of that starts with transformation. So let's believe that this biblical promise is true, that we really can be transformed and know God more intimately. But it's going to take two ingredients to begin to experience this spiritual transformation. The first ingredient is intention. Let's read John 5, 1 through 9. That's going to be the framework for how we look at being transformed. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This is a great story we're going to break down, but what I want you to pay most attention to in this passage is this question that we're going to come back to a lot today. The question that Jesus asked the man, because it's a similar question that he's asking all of us. Do you want to be healed? Jesus is known, if you look throughout the Gospels, for asking penetrating and profound questions. I got to be honest, this question at first glance seems a little bit silly to me. Jesus is near this pool called Bethesda, and lying around this pool are disabled people who believe in this legend of healing properties of the water. There's a footnote after verse 3, if you're looking actually in your Bible and not just on the screen, which takes you to the bottom of your Bible where you find verse 4. Did anybody notice that it just went from 3 to 5 and wonder why is Jordan skipping a verse in the middle of something? Well, verse 4 is not in every manuscript uh, that we have of John chapter 5, so it's added as a footnote that's probably giving us some indication of why people were around this pool. And from it, we learned the people around the pool believed that the occasional stirring in the water was the work of an angel who would come and touch the water. It would stir up, and the first person into the pool after the stirring began would supposedly be healed. Now, more than likely, what created this stir in the water, it wasn't an angel, just so you know, this wasn't a magical healing pool that Indiana Jones tracked down 2,000 years later, although that would be... I don't know what the fifth movie... I'll talk to Steven Spielberg. Um, more than likely what created the stir in the water was this, this uh, underwater spring that's underneath the pool that, that's bringing the water up into it. But somehow this belief had been passed down. And as we learn 
In verse 7, our other central character is putting his hope in it for healing. So Jesus comes to this pool among these people wishing for healing, and there's one who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Notice verse 6, it says, when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew he had been in this condition for a long time. So we're seeing some, uh, some sovereignty, omniscience of, of God here. But then he asks him, do you want to be healed? Again, this seems like a silly question to ask a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years and who is spending his time around this pool hoping for healing. You'd think the answer was obvious. You'd think it was an unnecessary question. You'd think Jesus would say, do you have faith in me or do you believe in God or something like that? Yet Jesus, knowing how long he's been in this condition, asks him, do you want to be healed? Now, why do you think he asked that? Well, I think part of it is because Jesus refuses to force his way on us. To be transformed, we have to want to be transformed. And after living with this condition for 38 years, it's possible that not only are this man's legs paralyzed, but also his desire to truly be healed. We don't know how many times he's come to the pool, but his hope of ever being healed may have faded after all the trips he's made there. His desire for a different life may not have felt possible. But I think there's another deeper reason for the question. I think it's possible that after so many years with this condition, a part of his identity or value or worth was attached to being a paralytic hoping for healing by the pool. His condition had come to define who he was. And Jesus was about to change his condition and who he was. So he asked him first, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be changed from who you are? And this brings us to the central issue of our intention with spiritual transformation. An important question for each of us is, do we really want to be transformed? Some of us have had certain conditions we've struggled with for years. We've, we've gone to church for years. We've had amazing experiences with God, times of tears and joy and, and trusting and repentance. And yet over and over and over again, as Monday morning comes around, I'm still the same person. Nothing much seems to be different. But I think the first place we look and, and the first careful question we ask ourselves is, do we really want to be transformed? Are we sure? Are we truly willing to go where we may, need, we may need to go and do what we may need to do? And in the process, perhaps even begin to lose a part of our, our identity, lose part of who we have come to know ourselves to be. Because this is what it might cost us if we intend to cooperate with God in the process of our transformation. Jesus asked us, do you want to be free from anger? Do you really? Do you want to be free from lust? Do you want to stop worrying? Do you want to live without fear? Do you want to stop controlling the people in your life? Do you want to stop shading the truth? Do you want to be free from past pain? Do you want a better marriage? Do you want to be healed? Do we really? And I would caution us from answering these questions too quickly, because when we do, I think we underestimate our tendency toward having good intentions, but never moving on them. Do we want to be healed? Too quick of an answer downplays the radical effect of transformation in our life. Our conditions are not seasonal issues that come and go, but they become a part of who we are. The more carefully we think about our unformed hearts, 
the more we realize that part of our identity is attached to our unformedness. We've grown accustomed to our shame, to our self-absorption. We may not feel truly alive except when we're raging or indulging our lust or enslaved by anxiety or trapped by fear. You see, in weird ways, I think to varying degrees, we often convince ourselves we need our conditions, our things that we're struggling with. We find safety and security and identify with them. They become our friends, and, and we will lose some of that if we're transformed in those areas. So, so this is where I'd like us all to do a little bit of a gut check. Uh, hopefully at this point in the sermon, there's some agreement in what you're hearing so far, and a lot of a desire to do something. You might be thinking of those areas in your life that you need transformation, but that desire has probably been there before. And in reality, there was a minimal amount of actually doing anything about it. It's almost as if there is some comfort in simply being someone who knows they need to change. We almost feel as though we're doing something really heroic when we're just being honest and authentic about the pretty obvious fact that there are major areas in our lives that need to be transformed. And all that honesty and authenticity is great. We, we need to do that. But it's a very inadequate goal. It's not the end. It's just a means to the end. It's a necessary ingredient in our growth, but it's not the goal. Transformation is the goal. Intention is the quality of heart and will that honestly and authentically looks at the unformed areas of our lives, grieves over them, and then says, I will do whatever I need to do to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in my transformation. But then there's one more ingredient I want to mention. We need to have the intention to be transformed, and then we need to believe that we can be transformed. Go back to the story in John 5. This poor man has lived paralyzed for 38 years. We don't know how old he is, but we know at least 38 years he's been paralyzed. So the vast majority of his life, he's always being carried around by others. He's lying on a mat near a pool day after day. If that was you, you probably would stop believing that life would ever be different, right? If it's the same thing day after day for 38 years. And the same thing happens to us. We, we live imprisoned in our conditions, controlled by past experiences, haunted by these, these sins we can't seem to shake, consumed by the guilt and shame of intending to change, but never doing anything about it. And after all those years and sermons heard and worship experiences, prayers prayed, vows made, counselors seen, the condition still exists. And we wonder, is it really possible to change well, let's just always be a part of who I am. And our answer to that question is key because what we believe about the possibility of transformation will play out if we will ever actually experience it. We always live out our beliefs. We, we act according to our convictions, whether we realize it or not. Often you'll hear people say that we ought to live up to our beliefs. Well, the truth is, I don't think we have a choice about it. It is the nature of true belief that it is always lived out. I mean, just try to imagine some true belief you have that you don't live out. If you had an incorrect belief that God is angry with us and out to get us, that he doesn't really like us, then we're going to run and we're going to hide from him. We don't want to encounter God. If we believe that we will never really be transformed, we will live according to that belief. We always live up to our beliefs or, or down to them, whatever they may be. If we believe real change is a nice but ultimately impossible goal, 
then we will live without much effort to becoming different. So let me ask you all again, what do we believe about the possibility of experiencing new life today? What do we believe about the availability of the presence and power of God right here, right now, to begin to change our hearts and then our actions? Do we believe not that we can learn to manage and control our anger, but that our heart can actually become gradually free of anger? Not that we settle with just managing the lust within us, but that lust can be gradually destroyed. Not that we can bury the pain of the past, but the power of God can actually heal the pain in our past. Is that possible? Do we believe it can happen? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that this is easy. This is not the power of positive thinking in any of this. This is the belief in what the Christian life can be and the power of God to make it a reality in our lives. It is belief that God is writing the story of our life and he is actively and intimately involved in that story. At times, again, this may sound far-fetched and unattainable, and it might be tempting to dismiss this emphasis on transformation as, as like unproven or impractical or idealistic. It's a nice theory of the Christian life, but impossible to actually experience it in the dailiness of life. But everything I read or hear taught to me about Scripture, this is true that transformation into the likeness of Christ is actually possible and in reality, exactly what human life is supposed to be like. So that's the vision of transformation. We've considered the intention to live that life. We've considered the importance of belief. And I wanna take a a bird's eye view, 30,000 foot view, as some of our pastors say, of what it's going to take. What's our part? What do I need to do? Well, the very first thing I'd like us to understand is that following Christ is about training, not trying. Or, as Jedi Master Yoda would put it, do or do not. There is no try, right? Yes, we familiar with the words? Should I do the voice? Will it make it hit you hard? I'm not going to. I am not going to. This is serious. All... (laughs) Fair. Do or do not. There is no try. I don't... I can't, I can't do Yoda. So all the good intentions in the world will not make us into something we perfectly well know we are not. When we try really hard to be something that we're not, like a Yoda impersonator, we always fail because who we truly are eventually shows up. So the key here is training, not trying. There are essentially three aspects to it. And the first and most important by far is the power of the Holy Spirit. I could pick a gazillion passages from the Bible to demonstrate the truth of this, but let me mention just one. It's a passage I referred to earlier, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. What this passage is saying is that when we are walking with Christ, when we're orienting our lives around his teaching, we will begin to experience the fruit of the Spirit in our life. In other words, we'll begin to find those qualities listed uh, as becoming a part of who we are. I've heard uh, many people over the years say, hey, I have a short fuse. That's just how God made me. First of all, no, he didn't. But secondly, you see the fruits of the Spirit? Like, you don't have to have a short fuse if you have been transformed by the Holy Spirit and he is at work within you. 
It's not so much that we're trying hard to be these things, but we're actually becoming these things. And that is the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. The Bible is clear in teaching that it is the desire of God to transform us into the image of Christ. And we can count on the fact that the Holy Spirit will do his part. God will not grow weary. God doesn't take a vacation. He will not forget about us, but he is always in every situation at work to conform us into the image of Christ. So that's the first thing going on. It has nothing to do with you or me, but it has everything to do with God. But then there's a second aspect to the spiritual formation process. And once again, it's not up to us, but rather it is simply something that is going on apart from us. And that is the ordinary trials and temptations and events of life. Once again, there are many passages uh, I could read for this one, but I just mentioned one. This is James 1, 2 through 4. I forgot to mark my Bible. Here we go. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here the Bible is teaching that our lives, the things that we experience, they're not accidents. We're not victims of fate. The families we're born into, the, the marriages we have, our physical limitations, our health problems, the children we have or don't have, our jobs, our financial difficulties, the death of loved ones, joys, sadnesses, griefs, hard times, good times, temptations, that all of these things, which are all part of living life on this fallen and broken world, all of these things are playing a role in our spiritual transformation. And here is where our intentions and beliefs become so important. I don't think it'd be out of line to say that the vast majority of Christians are not excited about the importance of trials and temptations and tough life events and are looking forward to the next one that's going to come their way. Because most Christians see the trials and temptations that come as interferences and roadblocks, as things to be avoided, while God sees them as the very place where we must experience transformation, as a crucial means for transformation. The issue here is that we so often have a different agenda than God does. God's desire is for our transformation, for being conformed into the image of Jesus. But our agenda is normally for safety, for hassle-free living, for getting what we want for our own personal and temporary happiness. And so when people are in a difficult marriage, instead of seeing it as an opportunity to experience God's transformation, they opt out, thinking that God certainly want, wouldn't want them to be unhappy. Or when we have a, a certain health problem or job problem or relational problem or hurt from a friend or family member or even a hurt from church. Those are situations where God will meet us and transform us. But we want safety and temporary happiness more than we want transformation. And we try and escape from the very thing that God wants to use to change us. When we resist these things, when we fight against them, when we, we shake our fist at God, when we opt for the easy way out, we miss out on the means that God wants to use to make us more like his son. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, this sounds kind of sadistic. Why would God use pain to bring about growth? Isn't there a more pleasant way he could do this? Well, I think sometimes we underestimate how desperate our situation actually is, how fallen and broken we all are. 
how attached we are to the sin and spiritual dysfunction in our lives. We just want some spiritual aspirin to make us feel better, right? But we all know that aspirin just masks the pain. It doesn't actually cure it. I would say it's not sadistic to saw a person's chest cavity open for a quadruple bypass. It's certainly invasive and it's definitely painful, but it can save their life. It's not sadistic to pump deadly drugs into a person's veins in order to kill cancer cells. It can be horribly painful. It can bring great suffering, but it can save your life. We are people in spiritual danger, and we need much more than spiritual aspirin tablets. We need heart surgery. And often the only road to spiritual transformation is the road of suffering, because that's the only time when we finally listen and realize we can't just rely on ourselves. So the first two aspects of spiritual transformation happen without us, but the third one is all on us, and spiritual growth will simply not happen without it. And that is the intentional and purposeful practice of spiritual disciplines. So simply put, a spiritual discipline is any activity I can do now by direct effort that will help me to do what I cannot do now by direct effort. Does that make sense? That sounds like a Yodaism, right? (laughs) What I can do now by direct effort that'll help me in the future do what I cannot currently do now by direct effort. It's training our ways up there. We could do a whole other sermon or, or podcast or teaching session, breaking down the spiritual disciplines, but the spiritual disciplines, just to mention a few, are things such as the practice of solitude and silence, one I don't do a good job at. That's just listening to God. Scripture memory, Dave Martin's got that one down, Bible study and meditation, confession, prayer, journaling, and many others. Again, a spiritual discipline is something that we can do now by direct effort that will empower us to eventually, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, be able to do what we currently cannot do by direct effort. In other words, a spiritual discipline is a means to an end, but it's not an end in itself. The goal is to be like Christ, to live our lives as Jesus would. And the spiritual disciplines that we engage in are the means we use to cooperate with the power of the Holy Spirit and the ordinary trials and temptations and events of life to bring about this spiritual transformation. But there is a theology of trying that is unfortunately uh, predominant in many churches. And I know, hearing many of your stories, that you're trying to overcome this aspect of feeling like I have to try and do enough good to be right with God. Too many think that we need to just try and be holy, to, to, to really simply be moralists, to exert effort in the moment in order to act in a holy way right then. I, I touched on this two weeks ago in Colossians 3, we kind of broke this down more, but, but this doesn't work. And, and most people eventually give up because they're not always going to act holy in that moment that they feel like they need to. But the biblical perspective, again, it's not trying, but training. Training to become something we are not yet. And the spiritual disciplines are the training tools we use to work with God in being changed. Let me mention two passages that talk about this. Uh, The first one is from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, but this is from the message version of the Bible. If you've never read the message, it's put in like, the plainest, most easy to understand way for like a first-time Bible reader. And sometimes I really love the way the message communicates things. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. You've all been to the stadium and seen the athletes race. 
Everyone runs, one wins. Run to win. All good athletes train hard. They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. You're after one that's gold eternally. I don't know about you. I love this. I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything I've got. No sloppy living for me. I'm staying alert and in top condition. I'm not going to get caught napping, telling everyone else all about it, and then missing out myself. It's a good way to put it. Nice job, the message. And then very simply, other verse, I don't have a slide for it, but just in 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul implores Timothy, train yourself for godliness. It's just like a last encouragement he's writing to, uh, to Timothy there. Uh, let, me, let me give you a story that might help get this point across. It's not a true story, it's just a story, okay? A man comes into a pastor's office and he tells the pastor about a tough area in his life that he needs to change, but it seemed overwhelming for him. Really, it seems impossible because whatever this is, it's been going on for years and he keeps failing, keeps struggling. So the pastor says, well, if I asked you to play a violin solo this Sunday in church, what kind of experience would that be for you and the rest of the church? Well, the man said, this would be a horrible experience for everyone because I can't play the violin. So it'd probably sound like dying cats singing. Then the pastor said, okay, well, what if I asked you to play a violin solo five years from now? And to spice things up, because it's a hypothetical, you've got to do a passable job or some evil person will kidnap and hurt your family. That's a ridiculous question, right? Well, a light begins to go on because the man knows that he really could do it in five years, not this Sunday, but sure, five years, but it would have to change his life immediately. First, you have to go buy a violin. He doesn't even have a violin. Then he has to get a teacher. Then he has to begin to practice. He would have to make time in his schedule and in his budget. He would have to apply himself to the training process. But in five years, if he oriented his life around learning to play the violin for this solo on a Sunday, he could do it. For us, living the Christian life with any degree of excellence takes at least the same amount of uh, intentionality and training as playing the violin, all right? I don't know. Did you do it faster than that, Ellie? Faster than five years you could play a solo? Okay. So there you go. All right, so longer than that. This is even a good example I'm giving you right now. But we'll have to get an instructor. We'll have to train. It'll require a total reordering of our life. But just like we will never be able to play the violin if we give it one lesson every other week that we miss half the time that we're never prepared for, and then we hardly practice, and when we do, we only practice half-heartedly, we won't succeed in training for our spiritual lives if we don't take it seriously. To simply look at a few verses or chapters of Scripture a couple times a week in church, maybe outside of church, maybe not for all of us, will realistically have no noticeable effect on our lives. This would be like taking a shower by having one drop of water every five minutes. We will never even get wet, not to mention clean, even if we stay in that shower for years. We need a lot of water for a sufficiently long enough time. Well, it's the same thing with our spiritual growth. We have to bring an intensity and purposefulness to our spiritual disciplines, which means we need to radically reorder our life in such a way that allows us to pursue our spiritual growth seriously. So going back to the violinist in training, this person would have to reorder his life to make room for learning how to play the violin. He'd have to prepare himself for his lesson. 
He'd have to pay close attention to his teacher and then put those things into practice at home. He'd have to get rid of some of the things in his life so he'd have the time and energy to attend his violin lessons and and really give it his all while he practices. It's the same thing with our spiritual pursuits. Many of us are learning that if we want to be serious about this, some things are going to have to change, and our lives and schedules may need to be drastically altered. It's at this point that people say, man, I can't do that. I got too much stuff going on. Well, that brings us full circle back to the issue of intention and belief. Listen again to Jesus's words to the man who was paralyzed for 38 years. Do you want to be healed? Do you really? You see, if we want transformation as kind of this extracurricular activity that's just squeezed into the cracks of our life without allowing the way we live our life and our beliefs that we have about our life substantially changed, forget about it. It's not actually going to happen. If we want transformation, true transformation, it will require a total reordering of our life so that we can truly attend to the spiritual disciplines that we need to pursue. It will require us to put our trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to make us into the image of Christ. It will require us to view our trials, temptations, and tribulations as moments to change us, not to hurt us. The man in John 5 may have been at the point that he had no hope and he was ready to give up. He says every time he tries to get into the water, someone beats him down there. So how can he be healed? He doesn't realize that the one true God The creator, the healer, the savior is standing right in front of him. Well, Jesus, in his mercy, as he does for us, he heals the man. The man picks up his mat and is walking. The thing that seemed impossible and like it would never happen is now a reality. This man has been transformed physically at this point. A couple verses later, if we were to look down, he encounters Jesus again because he didn't realize who Jesus was the first time that he met him. And Jesus tells him now that he's been transformed to sin no more. The initial transformation has taken place and now the training begins. If you are someone here today who's not yet had that first encounter with Jesus, his question of do you want to be healed is the most important answer you can give. Jesus, through his sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, has provided the means for us to be saved from our sin and to be made right with God. He has done the work. And what's required of us is the intention to be saved, the recognition that we need to be saved, and the belief that we can't do it ourselves, but only the work of Jesus can accomplish what would be impossible for us. For those of us who have answered yes to being healed from sin and rebellion. Now the question is, do you really want to be transformed into the image of Christ? The Holy Spirit is already doing his part within us, reminding us of scripture, helping us in times of temptation and convicting us of sin in those areas that need to change. Now we must do our part and train ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to work from within. This morning, if there's an area in your life that you feel like, man, I I can never change. I've been trying over and over again. I still wake up when it's Monday morning all over again. And you want help walking through this? Please talk to me or one of our elders or a trusted friend to walk through this with you. And if you're someone who needs to place your faith in Jesus for salvation for the first time, man, I beg you, do not put this off to surrender yourself to him and to experience the transformation 
that we were all designed to know. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much uh, for your mercy, for providing a means of salvation for us, for us to become right with you through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. God, I pray uh, that everyone in this room would come to that point of recognizing their need for forgiveness of their sin, that they can never do enough good, uh, they can never outweigh the bad or um, work their way towards some sort of uh, reward of heaven, but this, this comes only through the work that's already been done through Jesus. I pray you'd be uh, opening up our eyes to the sin in our lives, the areas that we need to change, and that we would give those things over to you, that you'd help us to not only have the intention, but belief that we actually can be different and changed. I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he dwells, he lives inside us. He gives us life abundantly to the fullest, that the Holy Spirit allows us to become people marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I pray that we would walk in those things, that we would put back the things that we've left behind of our own sinful way, that if we're people that are quick to anger or uh, we are not honest with our words or struggle with lust or uh, like, like the feeling of being someone who is constantly battling against the conditions in their lives, that instead of being someone marked by that, we'd be someone that is marked by the change that you have performed in our lives. God, I pray that you would um, just open everyone's hearts here to be honest with themselves of things that need to be different and then help them uh, to follow through on taking the steps they need to do to actually be different. I thank you that this is not something you would do on our own, that we do it within the, uh, the, the community, the family we have here within this church, and most importantly, that we do it with you as the power behind it all. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.